investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 64 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. Today is a lovely Friday, April 24th. Market is closed for the week. Going to go over the main events that you need to know and our insights on those events. So firstly, crude oil futures hit negative $37 per barrel. Not a typo. They went way negative, which was definitely unexpected unprecedented, a record-setting route. Should investors be buying oil here? The IPO window opened back up as Social Capital, their special purpose acquisition company, completed an upsized $720 million initial public offering. Are we going to see more IPOs finally? Private equity firm Sycamore, they're trying to wriggle out of a deal for Victoria's Secret that they announced just two months ago. Will this gambit work? And lastly, we're going to touch on the blog post I put out earlier this week, a discussion of the tough first quarter for private equity and where we go from here. But really an event that everyone was talking about, especially on Monday as it was happening. The May contract for WTI West Texas Intermediate, which is a blend of crude, basically the most quoted and most traded crude oil contract globally is Texas crude. WTI crude oil futures turned negative for the first time ever, plunging as low as minus $37.63 a barrel. That's right, oil trading at negative $37 per barrel. Now, before we get into this discussion, I just wanted to clarify what a WTI futures contract is. Well, a futures contract is obviously a financial contract between a buyer and seller for 1,000 barrels of crude oil delivered into Cushing, Oklahoma, where energy companies own storage tanks with roughly 76 million barrels of capacity. So what happened here was prices went negative for the front month WTI contract, basically the May contract, which was set to expire the day after it went negative. So on Tuesday, so just prior to expiry went negative and this contract was settles and and the unique thing to uh, crude futures contracts and other futures contracts is they settle with physical delivery, i.e. if you are long uh, WTI, WTI futures contract at expiry, you need somewhere to put a bunch of oil. If you own one contract, you need somewhere to put a thousand barrels of crude oil. And that's just the way the contract works. And so storage at the delivery point in Cushing, Oklahoma was full. And so you had desperate holders of this contract who had nowhere to put the oil because storage was at capacity. So they're willing to pay other people $37 just to take that oil contract off their hand. That's right. This lack of crude oil storage created a dynamic such that contract holders needed to sell at a negative price or risk taking delivery of oil with nowhere to put it. Now we're going to talk about who the main losers of this absolute discussion and oil prices, really holders of the United States Oil Fund ETF, which is basically retail bag holders, people who bought, who didn't know how the product worked. They didn't know how futures work. They didn't know how Contango works and how that whole roll yield works. And basically what Contango is, it's just a pricing dynamic such that uh, if you want to invest in oil, you just can't buy oil. What they do is 
they buy a futures contract which have monthly expiries and each month you sell one to buy the next one so when may is about to expire sell the main con may contract roll into the june contract or a later futures contract and that's how you get oil exposure without having to take delivery of it and what contango refers to is when prices in the future are significantly higher than the spot or the prompt month futures contract so while the may futures contract on monday dipped as low as negative $37 per barrel, the June contract was still what around $20 to the positive per barrel. So if you're selling out man and rolling to June, you have a massive negative roll yield where to get an equivalent amount of barrels per uh, oil exposure, you have to pay an enormously more amount just given that contango in the futures curve. But don't want to get too technical want to focus on uh, exactly what's happening here for investors. So typically, most market participants close any futures contracts ahead of expiration through cash settlement in order to avoid the risk of taking physical delivery. Only about 1% of contracts are physically settled. And really what happened was, you know, on April 20th and 21st, there weren't enough uh, or too many market participants held the contract, which is really heavily influenced by this United States oil fund ETF which owned had owned about 25% of the contract prior to uh, selling it and rolling into the next month. So basically, you have this phenomenon where uh, the pandemic has caused a massive demand destruction. And you had a big surge in supply, which really filled up all available crude storage, and then no physical delivery available, uh, just because no storage was left. And that's really never happened. So you have this really unique negative futures contract pricing environment, uh, where holders ha actually had to pay counterparties to take hold of the contract. So who really holds the United States oil fund, the big loser here? It's retail investors, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Retail investors, as well as large institutional players here. I believe they're, they're, it's, it's about a 70-30 split is the estimate, where 70% are approximately institutional investors and 30% retail speculators. Now, some of these, in, there are different holders of this. Not every holder is expecting uh, the price just to go up or down, or are just holding it for price reasons, making a directional bet, either going long or short. Others are using it for or hedging and things of that nature. And it's a $4 um, billion dollar fund, right? $4 billion? Yes, yeah. yes. And there is some interesting dynamics in terms of their USO's AUM. And because of the mechanism, which is getting pretty, pretty in-depth into the arcane world of ETFs, but because of the create-to-lend mechanism that is used by prime brokers in order to create more shares for shorting that some of their clients may want, it, it does result in the fact that when when oil price is going down, so when the fund is going down, they're actually getting inflows of AUM. So there's a, an inverse correlation between the price of the fund and AUM growth has been seen in the past. But what's interesting, as you had mentioned, is I guess there's a there's a lot to unpack here with with regards to USO. But number one being that the the US the USO has now stopped allowing for creation orders. So creation orders are and creations and redemptions are what keep an ETF in line with their nav. And so because there's none of these creation orders uh, that now it's trading at a very large premium, I, I believe on the 21st, it was as high as a 36% premium wow. to, to its underlying nav. 
currently it's about an eight percent. But you know, a normal premium or discount for an ETF would be around fifty basis points. So USO, the United States oil ETF, since they can't create more shares, it's just too large. It's now trading uh, way more than by premium to nav. It's just way more than the underlying futures contracts are worth. Exactly, you're buying you're buying a dollar for a dollar and 10 cents, basically, and which isn't a very good deal for you as an investor. The other aspect that's been very interesting with USO over the last few days here is that the fund has now been changing their holdings of their futures contracts. So typically, they hold the front month contract, as you had mentioned. So at I believe they before they made changes to their underlying portfolio, they were controlling about 30% of the June futures contract because they had already rolled out of the May contract. And it has been indicated before that the CME the, has historically limited them to about 25% of the open interest on any uh, WTI futures contract. And the CME so, being the uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, basically the uh, futures trading exchange that governs their trading. Yes. And so what this really means, like the fact that they're they're changing their futures holdings, what that means is that they're instead of just holding the front month, the June contract now, they're holding the June, July, August and September now in different proportions. And those weightings are no longer you know, made made it public in advance. And so it's really just giving investors less insight into what they're actually holding in their portfolio, as well as um, it's really resulting in the fact that that you're not actually investing in a, a true pure play directional bet on spot oil prices, as many investors, especially retail investors, as well as institutional investors, are wanting. And well, really, and that's hu- that's hugely problematic when a so-called passive ETF massively diverges from its stated intention and its underlying benchmark, right? Absolutely, especially midday. So they they announced they've they've now made three portfolio changes and the latest one was today where they halt the ETF mid mid trading day and announce the changes that they're they're going to allow in their investment mandate to make in their ETF which is just crazy that that they're not making these these announcements after hours these are these are definitely material changes that they're making to their ETF in addition i mean they if they if an if an investor really wants just exposure to the next front month or to the next contract, so not just the front month contract, uh, there already is an ETF for that, USL, which just has the 12, 12 months forward. It has those contracts in an ETF. So it really kind of defeats the purpose of the entire ETF. But really, what they're, why are they doing this? It's really just to, to save them from liquidation of the actual fund. This is just pure self-preservation. And, and why does this matter if, if, a, if an ETF isn't, is no longer tracking its benchmark very closely? Well, as we had mentioned, some industry participants they're using it as a hedge, and if no, if it's no longer tracking the benchmark that they want exposure to, this becomes completely useless as a hedge. Yeah. And then, as well as we had mentioned, that some investors just want to make a directional bet on the price of spot of the spot price of oil and oil. Well, 
now this is no longer <clears throat> a pure play bet on this. So it's also becoming useless in that sense. Well, but so, in any event, investors can't get exposure to spot oil, right? The, the best or the, they thought the best way to do it was rolling front month futures contracts. But yes, clearly that yes. has turned into an absolute disaster. And what we saw was it was so mechanical. It's become such a huge part of the market is basically the tail wagging the dog such that sophisticated hedge funds and commodities traders would completely front run the USO fund because they knew that there's such a large portion of the market they had to sell it this day on this time of the month and buy the next month's contract. So you had massive front running, which cost the ETF investors a massive amount of money. Absolutely. And and what's also interesting about USO is that they state the exact time frame that they're going to be rolling their contracts typically. And it's usually over three or four days, which I find very interesting that it's, it's something that most funds would indicate that will be rolling, but they won't give you a definitive time frame for just that reason, as you are kind of worried about people front running your trade. Uh, but overall, this just is an absolutely crazy situation where you know the it's it's where the actual functioning of an ETF has really broken down yeah like imagine if USO was still holding the contracts as they went negative, like an ETF can't go negative. So people are scratching their heads. They're like, what happens when you're holding an asset that has a negative value in an ETF? So that's a whole uh, whole rigmarole that no one really knows how that would happen. So as you indicated, they're uh, diversifying into a, a, a mini contract just to mitigate that risk now, which no one really thought of before. And the absolute shocking thing here is if you go to a retail trading platform, Platform like Robinhood, USO, this United States oil fund ETF, is now one of the most popular products. And so the question was, should investors be buying to try to capture that bounce back in oil? Absolutely no. Do not buy USO because it really does not track at all the underlying spot price of oil. You really can't get exposure to that as an investor unless you own like an oil well or, or something of, of that nature. You can't do it financially because uh, there's this notion of futures contracts, negative roll yield, contango, etc. So the only people that should be trading this type of strategy or this type of product are those who are well-versed and know exactly what contango is, people who know what negative roll yield is and are willing to accept those risks. It's really not anything that should be traded by amateurs and definitely not the futures contracts. You hear about some horror stories where retail investors were trading futures and actually held some and now have to take delivery and they have no idea what to do with it. So it's a crazy dynamic where investors have flooded into the oil markets trying to bet on a rebound in crude price and just got absolutely demolished, got run over. Uh, you have kind of hedge fund sharks just picking off retail investors. It's a real sad story, but um, who knows why it's become so popular. Uh, so if you're thinking about trading USO, please, please stay away. It's basically a recipe to lose money. And that's really all I got to say about that. On to some private equity M&A. What happened uh, initially, the background of the story in late February, private equity firm Sycamore struck a deal to buy a 55% interest in Victoria's Secret from the owner L Brands for approximately $525 million. So that was just two months ago when the whole coronavirus, pan, uh, well, it wasn't a pandemic at that point, but it was certainly uh, people were aware of it 
in the market. They were aware that it was spreading globally. At that point, it was starting to uh, break out in Europe quite a bit. So coronavirus was not something that was unknown, like such as, say, a year ago. So just two months later, uh, Sycamore is trying to back out of the deal to the effects of the coronavirus pandemic, claiming that the closure of Victoria's Secret stores, skipping of rent payments and furloughing of employees represented a breach of conditions of the acquisition agreement. Now, what Sycamore does, a private equity firm that really tries to buy struggling retail companies. I believe they bought Staples. They have bought uh, Talbots and some other struggling retailers. So it's, it's really their specialty. And Victoria's Secret has really struggled lately. They've fallen out of touch with shoppers. Uh, and the shoppers really just shifting away from their like overtly sexy imagery and kind of, uh, what would it be, unrealistic body types. Um, but, you know, what do I know about that? Nonetheless, if we get to the numbers, which I do know about during the last fiscal fourth quarter of L Brand, same store sales dropped 2%. But Victoria's Secret were down 10%. So you definitely can't have double-digit same-store sales declines. The other huge drama that you had revolving Victoria's Secret and L Brands was the company's founder, Les Wexner, was tied up in this whole Jeffrey Epstein criminal court case. So that was uh, another, you know, bad stain on the company that they needed to, to kind of distance themselves away from. So what's happening in this case specifically? Uh, Sycamore is arguing in court saying we want to get out of the deal. However, Delaware law generally requires a target to make a quote reasonable reasonable best efforts to operate in its ordinary way as it waits for an agreement to become final. And really the argument here is what's or- ordinary if you're struck by a pandemic and the law requires you to shut down your stores is uh, you know, agreeing with that and doing what the law is telling you to do and doing what your competitors are doing. Is that ordinary or not? However, what's going on after Sycamore filed is L Brand sued Sycamore back to try to get them uh, to force them to complete the deal, saying the deal's terms excluded the private equity firm from using the coronavirus as a reason to back out. I got a quote here from the L Brands in their 32-page complaint. It stated, The parties agreed that Sycamore would bear the risk of any adverse impact stemming from such a pandemic. The deal's specific terms expressly carved out any impacts resulting from pandemics. That's the so-called material adverse effect clause, which really they're not claiming in this case. They're basically saying, look, you didn't operate in ordinary course, so we just won't close. But really... I don't think Sycamore's exactly trying to get out of this deal. I think they're more so just trying to uh, garner a price cut, try to get the asset a bit cheaper. Um, uh, some additional details of the suit were that um, L Brands warned Sycamore of what they're going to do, and Sycamore actually uh, agreed, raised no objection with these actions to address the coronavirus pandemic. And Sycamore being a retail specialist, they actually were doing similar things with their retail concept. So this shouldn't have been at all a surprise. As expected, L Brands is seeking a declaratory judgment of specific performance to enforce its contractual rights. Basically, lawyer talk 
forcing Sycamore close. Ultimately, I think what Sycamore is gaming at here, a price cut, trying to, um, you know, create a bunch of legal problems. And ultimately, it'll probably result in a price cut. It's really, really difficult to see Sycamore getting out of this deal the way it's papered up. But nonetheless, I mean, the market is certainly concerned. Shares of L Brands fell as much as 20% on that news. What are your thoughts on this uh, really interesting situation of a private equity firm? backing out of this deal in which well, it was a partnership. I mean, it was only 55% interest. So it's certainly this partnership, not off to a great start, is it? No, it certainly isn't. And I mean, you really laid out the, uh, the case here that both sides are trying to make. The one thing that I would, would add is that Elbrand's they will argue that their actions are just in line with what other retail stores are doing. And if they're able to show that, um, then it's likely that this would be I, you know, proven to be just as, as a course of ordinary course of their business. You know, the original merger agreement, you know, this was in late February. Um, perhaps a secondary argument that they can have is that Sycamore would have already had um, some knowledge of COVID impacts globally as it was evolving at that point. But you know, as, as you mentioned, it's highly likely that Sycamore is really just using this as leverage to recut the deal. Um, I guess the only other possibility is that Although they see it as a very low probability of winning a judgment, uh, that they believe it's worth the effort just because of the uh, the, the velocity of Victoria's Secret uh, deteriorating business model. And the really interesting thing about Victoria's Secret right now is that they're just so heavily reliant on in-store sales as they do have a lot of leases on their balance sheet. And in addition, so their their business model isn't really well suited, uh, isn't as well suited for online. But as well, because of that, they're really, really reliant on mall traffic. So those are kind of two areas that have been structurally deteriorating. But once again, that is something that was known uh, prior to anything involving COVID. And the flaws with their underlying business model aren't really a good excuse to be able to to drop out of a merger. But as well, I would just add that, you know, why this is such an important deal to, to be looking at right now is because it may have some implications for some of the the other deals in the retail space. Major uh, implications. Yes, you have Tiffany's, um, which uh, for full disclosure, we, we do have a position in, as well as the Tobman deal and Delphi deals. Well, and we just um, saw a Steinmart deal fall apart, right? They couldn't meet the credit conditions on the deal and the buyer walk. Absolutely. So although, you know, our view right now is that Sycamore doesn't really have much of a case uh, that if that does change, that will have implications and the reverberations will be felt throughout the merger arm space. Yeah, so that would suck. That's why <laughs> That would really suck, actually. Certainly, certainly. <laughs> All right. So really one to watch here, Sycamore and Elbrand's Victoria's Secret. We'll continue to monitor that situation. We wanted to chat about something we haven't seen in a while with the whole coronavirus-led bear market. That really took IPOs out of the picture. But that IPO window opened back up with Social Capital. Uh, their founder, Chamath Palihapitiya, his SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Company, went public this week in a $720 million initial 
public offering. So this one was called Social Capital Head of Sophia Holdings Corp 3, which is, as I indicated, Special Purpose Acquisition Company, aka a SPAC. Um, they're pl- initially planning on raising $900 million from a pair of SPACs that were going to go public on March 16th. But as listeners would remember, March 16th was uh, one of the worst stock market days in history, calling it, I believe that was Black Thursday, where the Dow dropped like 13%. So obviously, they uh, they shelved it temporarily, and then, uh, you know, went public about five, six uh, weeks later. And this is a popular one because uh, Social Capital's first SPAC, the uh, the first iteration, uh, the deal that they put together was acquiring Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, which trades under the ticker space, SPCE, which is a huge retail speculator favorite. It's one of the most popular trades out there. Uh, so they're looking to recreate that magic there. Uh, so that's an interesting IPO, $720 million in a SPAC. I'm not sure if we've ever seen one that big. So this IPO cracking open on Friday, we saw two additional SPAC IPOs, one being CC Newberger, the other being Chardon Healthcare Acquisition. Those raised $360 million and $85 million respectively. In addition to that, we did see a biotech IPO. Oric Pharmaceuticals raised $120 million. So it's really good. What is happening here? It's like during that bear market, we saw no IPOs, and now you're starting to see them again. Uh, basically, indicative that the market's kind of healing from that uh, like high velocity drawdown that we went through. S and P dropped, uh, peaked to trough 35%. TSX down was down 38%. Had a good bounce back here. Markets up about 25% off the lows, and the IPO is really just indicative that uh, all is well in the market again. It's not quite full steam, but at least that window is cracked open such that we can get a good number of IPOs in the market. And as a firm who conducts back arbitrage, it is great to see some new issues in the market, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And specific to the this area of the market, you know, SPACs, is the positive aspect is that this issuance has traded up as well. So that will be an indicator to other firms that are looking to do uh, SPAC IPOs that the market there's healthy demand for for these vehicles um but as well what uh, there likely is pretty good demand from merger arb funds as well as there has been a decrease in the amount of m&a deals announced so this is an area for merger arb funds to look at deploying some of their capital um which is a positive for the SPAC market and equity markets in general not really a whole lot to add here other than that i think you gave a pretty good outline of that you know SPACs have been one area of the equity markets that have still remained strong. I believe there's been, oh yeah, almost $4 billion issued uh, so far within SPACs uh, so far this year. So uh, it, it, it in a historically bad start to the year. Um, that remains a you know a small bright spot within within the markets here. Yeah, the other space that's doing relatively well, large cap growth, names like uh, Amazon, Netflix, etc. I also wanted to touch on this Oric Pharmaceuticals Biotech IPO, which raised 120 million. Just looking at the stock, it actually traded up 61 percent in its debut of trading, indicative of you know a risk appetite coming back into the market, which is great to see. Because, you know, when we went through something traumatic and a lot of times investors are gun shy, don't want to participate in the more speculative IPOs. But thankfully, that's going away. So hopefully we do see some more issuance 
here. And, uh, you know, that's a great thing for arbitragers as well, getting more SPACs to trade. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to chat about this week is I put out a blog post a few days ago talking about the rough quarter that private equity had uh, in the first quarter. And by private equity, we're actually talking about private equity replication through liquid public securities. Also did a webcast on this available on our website if you want to check that out at accelerateshares.com. Basically talk about this private equity replication strategy, which was first discovered and written about by Harvard Business School professor Eric Stafford in 2015 where he defined private equity replication as levered small cap value investing. So it's basically a three-factor model, and intuitively this model makes sense. So if we think about private equity, and we define private equity as leveraged buyouts. So firstly, leveraged buyouts are generally conducted on smaller companies, so significantly smaller than that of the average S&P 500 business. And historically, if you look at academic research, small capitalization stocks have outperformed the market pretty dramatically. This is known as the small cap anomaly. Secondly, leveraged buyouts are typically executed at lower EBITDA multiples than the S&P 500, and historically, stocks with lower valuations have outperformed. This is known as the value anomaly. Third, adding leverage amplifies return. So when you add debt, you utilize margin, etc., your return is amplified, uh, positive or negative. So if one were to concoct a formula to generate long-term market-beating returns, this private equity formula, leveraged small cap value, that would really be it. So under this multi-factor approach using size, value, and leverage, our private equity replication formula, under this definition, private equity, that portfolio declined by 37% in the first quarter of 2020. So it certainly is a risky and volatile strategy, and it has suffered a pretty significant drawdown, much more significant than the overall S&P 500. However, there is a bright spot to touch on here because historically private equity portfolios have had exceptionally strong returns coming out of recessionary bear markets, which we just had. For example, the U.S. suffered an economic recession from March 2001 until October 2001. Right now, analogous to that, we are going through a recession currently. So from the bottom from the market bottom in 2001, during this recessionary period, the S&P 500 continued to struggle for several years. However, the private equity replication portfolio had a dramatic bounce back, compounding at double digit rates of return for a number of years, a one year return of 60%. The S&P 500 was down six, three year return, 50%. And that's, I believe that's, uh, yeah, that is annualized on a five year basis coming out of the 2001 recession, private equity replication had 46.4% annualized return, which is, I believe after that of five years of 46% returns, you're earning nearly a seven fold return. Meanwhile, S&P 500 did 6% annualized. So keep that in mind. Then if we go to the last great recession of 2008, private equity came screaming out of the gates as measured from the bottom of that last big recession, clocking in on a one-year return of over 160%, nearly triple that of the S&P 500. And the five years from uh, the bottom in 2008, the S&P 500 had a total return of 175%, which is good. However, it pales in comparison to private equity's 301% return over that five-year time frame. So private equity replication is a risky, volatile strategy, but it is something that can do exceptionally well coming out of recessionary, recessionary bear market, which you know is something that we could be coming out of right now. Absolutely. And so, so Julian, why would 
someone invest in a product such as this as opposed to uh, just a more traditional private equity fund? Well, there's a number of issues with traditional private equity being high fees, 2 and 20, that 2% management fee, 20% performance fee, or carry, which can add up to about 7% per year. Private equity replication, you can get at a small fraction of that. Then there's the whole illiquidity. Traditional private equity are typically locked up 7 to 10 years or longer to get your money back. Uh, private equity replication, you can basically get intraday li- liquidity, which uh, is good and bad. I mean, you do have to sit through pretty tremendous volatility. Perhaps you'll sell at the wrong time. Traditional private equity does lock you up. And then with private equity replication, you do have a lot more transparency, a lot more control over that. So it's something to consider. And obviously, traditional private equity, highly favored by institutional investors as an asset class due to its historical outperformance. So it's something to keep in mind is, you know, you can do the exact same, generate the same returns, significantly lower fees and better liquidity through private equity replication. And in this environment, I think it has a really good chance of generating great returns, as we saw coming out of the last two recessions in 2001 and 2008. But I digress. A lot of cool things happened this week. Glad we could share our insights with you on this episode of the Absolute Return Podcast. If you liked it, check out more at absolutereturnpodcast.com. That's it for us. Obviously, you should follow us on Twitter. Mike, what's your Twitter handle? It is M underscore Kessler. And mine is at Julian Klamochko. It's K-L-Y-M-O-C-H-K-O. Until next week, we wish you all the best in your investing and trading. We'll chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.